as an entrepreneur, especially now, I have to say there's sort of a glorification of you know, the job of being an entrepreneur. A lot of people think it's about the founder, but ultimately it's about the value you're providing for others. Hey, my name is Felix Tiet. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to turn a blog into a business, why is a brand book important, and what you should include inside your brand book, and what she did after losing an Instagram account of 100,000 followers. Today, I'm joined by Tomi Bailey from Makeup for Melanin Girls, which is a direct-to-consumer beauty brand that leverages community feedback to develop cosmetics tailored to the multi-ethnic beauty consumers, and was started in 2017 and based out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Tomi. Thank you, Felix. So happy to be on here. Yeah, excited to have you on. So I think you, uh, your situation, I think, is similar to a lot of people, or at least a, a stage that they've been in, which is that you started a blog and Instagram page before the business began. So tell us more about that. What was the blog and Instagram page about? Yeah, so the blog and the Instagram, the Instagram page actually started first. And what I was doing at the time was really just sharing content geared towards women with darker skin tone. So I was actually sharing makeup artists, um, different makeup artists around the world that were doing great work. And I was just promoting them, shouting them out, sharing their work. And it quickly just became like took a life of its own. Like I soon got like 10,000 followers. It was something that people were really enjoying because at the time this was around 2015 or so when i started this instagram page there weren't really a lot of spaces or online communities that were exclusively focused on product recommendations and makeup shopping for darker skin tones got it so you mentioned that you're sharing the content from other makeup artists did you have to like create like original content here or was it like reposting like what was the technique that you were doing to build up your instagram page yeah, so the blog really was where the original content was. So the way I like to describe this, for because I'm sure not all your your listeners or, or readers might be into makeup, but the way I describe it was a lot of women, um, especially women with darker skin tones, when they go makeup shopping, it's almost like they're trying to hack the system to make it work for them. So what would happen a lot of times is, let's say um, a shopper is going out and is looking for a nude lipstick. So a nude lipstick color could actually look something that's marketed as nude for everyone can actually look different on different skin tones and what a lot of women were doing were saying oh like this color let's just say color a looks really really good on your skin tone for a nude look so there were a lot of these like sort of exchanges going on the way friends would do and i was trying to scale up that conversation so the original content was on the blog where i would say okay if you have this type of skin if you have oily skin here are the best foundations for you. If you're oily and you have darker skin tone, if you have dry skin, here is the content for you. And then the, on the Instagram was just to shout people out that we're doing good work. So the same as someone that has a photography page that's like shouting out photographers, similar idea, but just this makeup artist and specifically those that were doing makeup on darker skin toned women. I got it. So you're almost like a curator to some degree where you were finding out where the conversations were, who were the best content creators, who were the best makeup artists that were covering specific problems that your audience was trying to solve and you were directing them and, and shouting them out and, and spotlighting these content creators. 
Yes, exactly. And in, in the beginning, the content creator stuff I was really doing for fun and selfishly because I was trying to find good makeup artists myself. But when I noticed like a lot of people were enjoying the content, that's when I started the blog and doing original content. And that was really what got me, you know, me to build my email list and get leaders and that type of thing. Yeah. Got it. And you mentioned that the blog came first or Instagram came first? It was actually Instagram first. So Instagram started first and it was again fun for me because I wanted these were conversations I was having with my friends also and I was trying to find great makeup artists in my area for me also so the Instagram started first for fun and then the blog was really my space to make original content and it was really where I was driving value for my followers because that's where you know they were getting more personalized content for whether it was skin conditions or just specific looks they wanted to create Got it. Okay, so the blog was when you first started saying, okay, I'm starting to build an audience. Let me start creating my own content, my own original content. What was your process there for figuring out what kind of content to create now that you were doing it? You're creating content yourself. Yeah, so the, there is actually a bit of a story behind the blog. So the way, the reason what spurred me to start the blog, because like I said, at first it was just a fun thing, creating this community and page that was going quickly, was um, I ran a campaign that was noticed by the New York Times. So this was used, this was in 2015. Um, one of the major makeup companies, they had featured like a Sudanese model on their page. And this was before you could moderate comments on Instagram. So the model actually got a ton of racist comments and stuff about her lips. So I just started this campaign that was called like, I love my lips the way they are. Or I love my big lips, I believe it was called. And then a reporter for the New York Times was doing a story just sort of about about diversity in the beauty industry, sort of how, you know, Instagram was becoming like a new mode of communication for brands and bullying, kind of all those things in one. And she had reached out to me as part of the story. And I think once that happened, that gave me sort of that confidence of, oh, what I'm doing is actually really bringing together a community. I should deliver even more value for people. So that's what motivated me to start the blog as well and doing original content. Got it. So this campaign that you started, what, what was it exactly like? Was it you posting things on Instagram? Like what, what was uh, involved? What, what, what is required for someone out there that maybe also has an idea for a movement, an idea for some way to counter the negativity that they're seeing in their space? Like, what, how, how, how did you get this off the ground? Yeah, so what I did there was basically start the hashtag associated with it. And I wrote, and I think a lot of times people are wary of doing really long posts on Instagram. But if you do have a following where they're interested in what you have to say, I find like it doesn't matter. They would actually read like your long caption. So I wrote a pretty in-depth story in that post of how I was bullied when I was younger for having bigger lips. And it's like unacceptable that this was happening you know, to this model, she is just trying to do a job and people are attacking her on Instagram and attacking the company. So I kind of wrote this sort of, I would say, now that I think back on it, it was like a heartfelt story of my experience. And at that time, I already had a few followers. I think the page was at 10,000 at that time. So a lot of people felt kind of that connection to the story because it was pretty personal. And then they started sharing their stories too. And that's what caught the attention of the New York Times. 
Okay, got it. So people were raising their hand and saying, "Like, I, you know, I, this story resonates with me. This hashtag, this movement, this 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 campaign that you you started resonated with them." So you start recognizing that wow, there is a pretty, uh, I guess, well knit community that you were 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 building around you, and that's when the New York Times picked it up. Did that lead to more uh, like the would the the community grow exponentially at that point once there was more attention from you know the, the much I guess a big establishment like the New York Times? Actually, no. I got probably a few more followers, but I, I, for me, the, that um, incident was more of the beginning of me realizing I had the tenants for a business. And something you might not know, Felix, is I've actually been a longtime listener of Shopify Masters, and I do think um, it was one of those things that you would pop in on a commute to work in the morning when I was still, you know, working full time and always thinking, oh, I would like to start a business on my own. And I think listening to other stories of entrepreneurs, there's this thing of sometimes part of being an entrepreneur is knowing when you get lucky as well. And I think that was when once the New York Times things happened, that was when the gear sort of set in motion is like, yes, this is fun for me, but I'm actually providing value that could be transformed into a business. Mm, okay, so the New York Times article was like validation uh, from from yeah. you know, that that you had some something going on that had uh, some kind of buzz that you could 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 ride or at least use to kick off some kind of business. And you're building this community. What made you make this jump? Because I think a lot of people get stuck here where they see that they might be building an audience, maybe ten thousand people, which is not 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 easy to get, right? A lot of people don't have ten thousand followers, but you grew to ten thousand. Maybe someone else out there also has ten thousand followers. How did you make this leap, this connection that you could turn as the, or not turn into a business, but build a business off of this? So for me, um, it wasn't really just the buzz. For me, it validated the value. I think ultimately for any business, it's really, it's not, it's when, as an entrepreneur, especially now, I have to say there's sort of a glorification of the job of being an entrepreneur. A lot of people think it's about the founder, but ultimately it's about the value you're providing for others. And what that New York, that we ended up getting, ended up getting a ton of articles after that. But for that first one, what it validated for me was the value of what I created because I didn't know the value of it at the time. I just thought, hey, you know, this is really cool. A lot of women connect to the stories I'm sharing. A lot of women have had similar experiences, but I didn't know the value of it or that there would even be a way to attach a monetary value to it. So having this, you know, the reporter do this in-depth story about diversity and beauty, that was when the value of what I was creating really stuck for me. That makes sense. Okay, so you saw that there was value in the community that you're building, the stories you're telling, that there was some kind of attraction that people were coming to you and the community that you were building. Now, how did you decide what kind of business to attach to this? What kind of what kind of products to launch? Because you could go anywhere, not, not yeah. necessarily anywhere, but you could have done a lot yeah. of different things. How did you figure out and narrow down what you know the makeup essentially? Yeah, so that's a really good question because my first thought was just to go through content marketing. Because at first, so I mean, I had this community on Instagram and this is great advice for other entrepreneurs out there is ultimately you do have to own. I'm actually, I think it's the founder of Shopify that I got this from, um, Toby. He says like the only thing you own is sort of your website domain and your email list. Like that's mm-hmm. pretty much it. So at that time I realized, you know, I'm building this great thing on Instagram, but if the Instagram platform disappeared today, I don't even know how I would connect to this audience. So the very first thing I wanted to do was just to create a way where, you know, the audience would be 
coming to visit me for my own original content. So my first initial thought was actually a blog and the blog was going well. Like the very first post, I believe I had a thousand readers, which to me was just crazy. I was like, this many people want to read the recommendations I have and the things I have to share. So content marketing was definitely my first path that I went down on. I actually got a volunteer team of about 14 writers from the community because so many people were excited about this and wanted to help. Like our initial idea was sort of like be the BuzzFeed for makeup for darker skin mm-hmm. tones, like have all these like stories, um, celebrity makeup tips, like all of those things. Content was actually my first play, if you will. Okay, makes sense. So you were focused on, on content marketing. So you start up this this blog. How were you driving the traffic from your Instagram, which is where your audience exists at that time, to your own content, your own platform on your own blog? Yeah. And at that time, I wasn't even thinking of it as content marketing. I thought the content marketing was going to be the business. Mm, I see what you're saying. Because brands were willing to pay. So a lot of brands, so coming back to the value conversation, a lot of brands, um, I mean, now we have a large brands like Sense Beauty, for example, that have really made diversity their focus. But in 2016, a lot of brands were just still trying to figure out how to better connect with this multi-ethnic audience that I have. So basically, I was, I was already getting offers to advertise, like do sponsored posts. So in my mind, initially, the blog was going to be the business. So in terms of driving traffic from Instagram to the blog, um, well, a lot of what I was doing was sort of, um, I first started with the basic thing, like low-hanging fruit, like giveaways, because I was getting free products too from brands and things like that to promote to my audience. So that was the first low-hanging fruit. And the other side is I was just asking my audience what they wanted to see. So I knew a lot of people wanted product recommendations. Those were sort of the posts that were doing the best. So I was actually testing before writing a blog post, I would test it with my audience. Like I would post sort of a snippet of it. It, Let's say I wanted to do, say, five top foundations for dry skin. I would actually make that into like a visual, put it in my community um, Instagram page, see how many people respond to it, and then I would write the article about it. Versus if I put another post about hyperpigmentation next to that one, if a lot of people didn't comment, then I would not write the story on that. And just for, like, I guess, for some readers that might not know all these makeup terms or cosmetic terms, hyperpigmentation is just a skin condition when someone has, like, different colors on their skin tone. So it's like a skin condition, like rosacea or eczema or something like that. I got it. So you are testing the waters instead of just diving in and, create, you know, spending hours, maybe days or weeks creating the content. You first teased it out and see if people wanted to know more about it. You did this by creating some kind of teaser, some kind of image of something that you were going to create. And then were you kind of leading them towards giving you feedback whether they wanted it or not? Or you just kind of threw it out there and then you know, didn't kind of bias, like, I guess how much of a, how much were you asking for feedback versus just kind of tossing something up and seeing how they would respond? I think we were doing more toss up. And then by the time I got, that was when it was just me, I was doing just toss up. And then I started to realize like, okay, this is a lot of work. I need some help. I need experienced writers. So I actually reached out into the community and um, was able to enroll about 14 um, volunteer writers and these were just women that were passionate about what we were doing and the mission of the blog at the time and also there was opportunity to get free products because the business model was we were writing these sponsored posts at points for larger brands so they would 
either pay us or give us products like PR, and then the writers would be able to get some of the products. So once I got some experienced writers in, we actually had more of like an editorial calendar and like kind of had a sense of listicles that would get get people to leave more comments and things like that. So in the beginning, it was just me just tossing things up. But once I started getting writers on board, it was actually more of like a planned uh, scheduled calendar of content. Got it. Okay, so 14 writers, that's not, that's a pretty yeah. large team to, to manage. How did you, first of all, how did you, uh, I guess, um, not filter them out, but how did you interview them or figure out that they would be a good fit? And how did you manage a team of 14 writers? Well, I was working full time, so I did not manage them very well, <laughs> which is part of why I ended up actually moving towards more e-commerce. So it was a mess. Needless <laughs> to say, there were a lot of different opinions. Um, I didn't. The editor in chief was still me. If I could go back, I would have just, you know, hired one of the girls that was really good and made her the editor in chief. So what ended up happening was I had a few writers that were really, really good and committed, and some of the others because it was volunteer, like they were putting their stories on time. It was a bit. Um, it was a lot to manage and a lot of people to manage as well. So we were putting out a lot of content, but there wasn't always um, clear direction for the team, which sort of led me, you know, a few months in, I was making some money here and there. People were paying us, was putting out content. But with the, I saw that kind of lack of direction and I actually decided to just like kind of anyone that wasn't volunteering on a steady basis just kind of let everyone go and redirect what I wanted to do, and which was how I ended up with actually creating products because that's what a lot of our customers were asking for. But I was actually really, really scared of going that direction because I just felt, oh, I don't have the domain expertise. Like I'm just like a sales and marketing person who I am, who am I? But a lot of our readers were asking for that. Yeah, definitely a different skill set, right? You have to learn a bunch of different things, jumping from writing, creating content over to now creating like a physical product. So tell us about that. Like what was the process you had to go through to start shifting from more of this content focus, like blog, like making money from ads and sponsors now to selling your own product? Yeah, it took me about a year to make the transition because the thing with the content was the content was already working. Like I was already getting a few uh, contracts here there and I already had this team. So it was difficult for me to make that leap, but the customers really kept asking for it. Like at different, you know, under different posts, they would leave comments about, you know, when are you coming out with our, your own product and those type of things. But I was really scared. It was really something that I didn't know where to start. I didn't know who I was supposed to talk to. Um, but what really encouraged me to make the change was actually when my Instagram page, I don't even know what was going on. I think they were doing some kind of blitz and my account was compromised and my page got deleted. I think that was a really, I actually cried that day, which was, I mean, how how many followers did you have at that time? I had a hundred thousand at the time. Wow. And I, I, that was what made me realize how much work I think sometimes when you're passionate about something. You, I sometimes I can be bad at actually counting up the hours I was spending on this. Because keep in mind, I was working full time the whole time while this is all going on. Mm-hmm. I was in a pretty like demanding sales role, and it was like one of the top performance. So I was still trying to do well at work. 
So I, when the Instagram account went down, that was a rude awakening for me for sure, because A, I realized just how much time and effort I spent just trying to grow this community, provide value to people. And at that time, I wasn't even really looking at my revenue numbers. It was just about like, let's, let me move this thing forward. So once the account went down, that's when I was like really focused on building a brand because I was like, I need to build the community as a standalone of itself. Like I need a brand that has an identity and not just something that's dependent on, you know, a social media platform to exist. So that was a really good awakening. It was pretty, like, I actually cried that day. Um, the way I got it back was also ridiculous. Like, I legit was just searching because when they would email me, like, the customer reps would sort of have their names on there. So I would go on LinkedIn, like, try and see who I could talk to, try and explain to them I was a real person and I had this community and I was in a spam account. And eventually I got it back. So once I got it back, I feel like, my engine was just raring to go. And I was like, I've got to do this. I have to not be scared. I have to build a brand. Now, when you talk about building a brand, especially beyond the social media platform, because I think a lot of people think that they can have a business that's sustained off of just like their Instagram following, but you're talking about building a brand beyond that. When, you, when, you, when someone out there wants to invest, I guess wants to do something similar and build a brand outside of just their social media following, where did you find you need to invest your time differently? So one of the things I did was a like at that time I just had the blog and I had the Instagram but there was obviously there was no dedicated product website like there was no there was no clear identity of this is a brand and this is what I'm doing so that was sort of the first step was sort of building like in terms of the marketing material the first thing I actually did was build a brand book of you know this brand I'm about to build what I think a lot of people, we, you know, especially when you see a founder that's like, you know, they're generating revenue, everything looks glitz and glam, and they're talking about their story. Like the boring part of doing a business plan, writing a brand book, like those are critical because how can you go on a journey and you don't have a GPS? Like you kind of need direction. Can you say more about this? Like what is a, what is a brand book and what needs to be inside of it? So for the brand book, um, I actually, I wouldn't even say I didn't have any prior experience before building it. I actually just went online on Google and looked at like brand case strategies for Lululemon and Nike. And I actually came across Pinterest, Pinterest.com. Um, they have actually their brand guidelines and brand um, branding guidelines on their website. And that was like some of my first steps. I tried to look at some other, you know, brands online, whatever files I could find and what was in there for me were literally my brand colors my brand story my brand vision our brand feel like who if you could build I also put in there our um, buyer persona of who my buyers were because just kind of different fictional characters thankfully for me it's about the beauty because influencers influencers are such a big part of the um beauty e-commerce landscape now i actually watched the videos of my target customer and would put sentences that they had said into my brand book in on who my audience was wow okay so the the brand book is this something that's that has changed over time since you started back in 2017 or is it supposed to be like concrete that you you know don't really veer away from um it wasn't even really because i was starting out it wasn't really set to be concrete 
it was helpful for me, even when I was, I, I ended up getting my first hire, it was just helpful for me to explain who my brand was to other people and what I was trying to do. And it's sort of explaining to myself too. Like I tweaked it here and there, but not very much because it was just meant to be, you know, this, this is who my brand is for. And this is the kind of voice because even when you decide on Twitter, like when you're going to start engaging with customers that way, like, is your brand like vulgar or is it fun or is it lighthearted? Like when I would onboard someone new, it was helpful for them to have this guideline so they would know the kind of voice that my brand will have. Got it. Now, when you talked about the the buyer persona, you mentioned that they were you're writing down or copying down sentences that people mm-hmm. in the space were saying. Why is, why was it important for you to do that? I think it was important for me because, uh, especially because I was putting out so much content, I wanted to use those same words that my customers were using. So, for example, when it came to email copy and I'm sending out, I started doing a lot more email marketing. I wanted, I still wanted the brand to feel authentic to my followers because I come from a very, like a more of a business background and I can, mm-hmm. you know, I'm that person, like, I'm my last email type of person. So I really wanted to make sure it didn't come off like me and really came off more of my customers. Because if you go back to the basis of the brand, it started almost like as friends having conversation. And I was really wanting to make sure that once I launched my product, that I kept that same feel or that same language. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about writing copy where when you are starting a business, you believe that you need to appear more established, more corporate maybe than you really are just to be taken more seriously. And a lot of times that bleeds into your copy, into your marketing and just is a little bit colder of a message than if you were to like to take a approach that you've taken, which is to take the exact words that it, from the conversations that real people are having in your audience. I think that's a really important point. And it makes it a lot easier too, I think, a lot of times to just take what they're already saying rather than... Than, than you know, try to come up with something up something yourself, which might even be further from the mark. So, yeah. So you you mentioned too that you uh, got pretty detailed with the the buyer persona when you describe the actual individuals that might buy from you. Can you talk more about this? Like, how detailed did you get? Um, I I kind of did just different fictional characters. The only detail was in terms of language, like what kind of aspirations did my buyer personas have? And I had two or three just to sort of give me an idea again on who I was going to be focused on. And to be honest, it just helped to simplify decision-making because really as an entrepreneur, like more than 50% of what you're doing is just making decisions and everything is so new, especially for me, I was dealing with a new industry. So I needed to be able to, so let me try and make this more concrete for listeners. So later on in my business, like I got an opportunity opportunity to do like a pop-up shop with a pretty renowned like um, magazine establishment and in order to make that decision I kind of just looked back at my brand book and my product like bio personas and I was like you know what this is a very cool opportunity but my audience is not going to be there so those was that ultimately was helpful for it wasn't like oh you know it fundamentally changed my business it just really helped me with making better decisions because every day is just like an onslaught of emails and opportunities and how do you decide which one to pick it's a lot easier when you kind of have some kind of brand guideline or slash business plan to point you in the right direction it just helped me to eliminate some of the noise as well 
Mm, I like that, that about how these guidelines helped you make decisions and you believe that as an entrepreneur, that is like the majority or at least the most important part of your job is to make these decisions. And things like decision fatigue are real, right? If every day you have to keep on making new decisions every time rather than just referring back to what have you done in the past? Has it worked? Has it not worked? Is this in line with stuff that you've done in the past? Yes or no? I think that makes it a lot easier to just kind of be, to not waste your time and energy on on things that didn't that don't actually matter. So I think that's an important um, reason why things like the brand book and business plan come into play. So now you mentioned that you built the brand book first, that you wrote down your vision, you kind of just laid out the plan for how you wanted this business to go. What was next? So the next thing was to actually source the product. So that was very, very tricky for me. So in the, in the beauty world, Typically, um, we operate by, I mean, I think this is even across industries, I shouldn't say beauty, MOQs or something like whether you're ordering from Alibaba or you're ordering from like a local local manufacturer or lab or whether you're doing apparel or beauty, like minimum order quantities are pretty standard. So in the beauty industry specifically, you hear the numbers that are typically quoted are about 5,000. So I was hitting that roadblock at a lot of labs that I would talk to because they would just be like, listen, it's 5,000 minimum order quantities because a lot of the labs will have to sort of make their own profit as well, right? And they bought all this machinery and equipment. So they're not just going to you know, do a lot of samples. A lot of them weren't willing to do that. So I first started online, um, reaching out to people. LinkedIn, I love LinkedIn so much. I feel like people <laughs> underestimate. That's your sales and marketing background. Yeah, that sales and marketing background kind of kicked in because then I would just find people at the companies, try and message them directly. You know, obviously I got a lot of like ghosting, people not responding to me or being like, who's this small business owner bugging me? So where I got actually my, that, my most lead so on via LinkedIn, someone was like, hey, you know, like you're a fellow Canadian because I'm based in Toronto. And like, I know someone that knows someone. I can help you get a lower minimum order quantity. So that was great. But I also was pointed into the right direction for trade shows. So in the beauty industry, there are a couple major trade shows that happen across North America and internationally. And that's sort of where all the manufacturers are and are based. So I was able to just kind of cold pitching people, cold emailing people. I was able to get some leads. But in the beginning, it was quite tough because if you don't have 5,000 minimum order quantity, you know, the deposit for that ready to go, a lot of labs are not interested in, you know, talking to you. So I want to take a, a moment to pause here and talk a little bit about your LinkedIn experience. I think this is important where you are using LinkedIn to build your network when you don't have the access to the knowledge or access to the resources at your at your you know immediate disposal. So when you when you are using LinkedIn, any advice here for anyone out there that is trying to connect with the right people to get their business off the ground? That's a very good question because I think it's almost becoming unique to me. I haven't sat down to think of the basic mm -hmm. steps. But what I would do, say, if I went through Google and found a company that was in the right wheelhouse for what I wanted to do, I would just try to go. A lot of times you can find, you can search for the titles within the company because a lot of companies will have their LinkedIn page up. So I would essentially search for individuals with the titles I was looking for, maybe buying, like I would look for a procurement manager or the buying manager, that kind of thing, partnerships, leads. And then I'll search for those titles within the company. And once I find the person, um, I would connect, but I'll add a note to that connection, like maybe make a little blurb. If the, a lot of, depending on how much the person has built their personal brand, if I found them on a podcast or anything else, or find even activities they've liked, 
that are similar to mine, I'll try and just make a quick comment. Like, hey, notice that, you know, you also are a fan of indie brands in Toronto. I'm Tony, I'm doing X. Can you help with XYZ? Here's my email. We'll talk further. So send out that out to a bunch of people. And sometimes it's kind of a volume game. I try not to be too spammy. So I connect back to something that I think is important to them. And then once I did that, I would get a couple leads from there. So yeah, I love LinkedIn. It's been very useful for me, actually, which a lot of people wouldn't think for a very like e-commerce, Instagram-driven business. Like LinkedIn has been a very powerful tool for me as well. So do you have any, any advice on how to use these connections that you've been building to, to get more press and more PR for your company? Yeah, so my company, thankfully, has gotten a lot of press. We've been featured in BuzzFeed, Glamour, Essence Magazine, Team Vogue, and all of that is being done without any PR firm or anything. So a big focus of mine, um, what I did was actually just sort of scrape and find information for articles that were written about businesses like mine, competitors of mine, and then I identified the reporters that wrote it and reach out to them, kind of, again, focusing on something they've written that I genuinely and honestly like, and then kind of sending that personalized email out, let them know what I was building, if they would be interested in like a PR package, and go from there. Of course, there were a lot of reporters that didn't respond, but some of the ones that did were at these like mega um, publications. And the cool thing about getting... um uh, press coverage is once you get one or two, it's a little, a little easier to get a couple more. So um, definitely cold emailing and pitching journalists does work, but you have to, they do get a lot of inbound. So you just have to be more personalized in your approach and really think of things that would be, they've written that you liked that would be relevant to your brand if possible and then kind of follow up from them. And the other thing is once a journalist has written about me and like I, you know, cold pitch them, I don't just sort of be like, yeah, we got the article. Like I remember there was one of the publications that written about our brand that they had a huge round of layoffs. I made sure to still follow up with the journalists I knew there to make sure they were okay. It's again, just trying to like, create that personalized contact because they might, if they have another article coming up, they might remember you and put you in that as well. Awesome. So lots of focus on relationship building. Use this as introduction to to get your press out there, but don't don't just kind of end the relationship there. Try to try to obviously feel follow up with them and extend the relationship and there much probably many more opportunities to work with them in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I would say like there's a lot of sometimes there's a lot of wins you can have with with small businesses and e-commerce with uh, like one-time things, but really the some of the great outcomes come from building or trying to build long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. Yes, that makes sense. And you mentioned too that you tried to be as personalized as possible and that's helped you get, it's still a numbers game, it sounds like you're saying, but it at least will skew the odds in your favor getting a connection by being by having a much more personalized message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, you you mentioned a, lot, a lot, couple obstacles along the way already. You you lost your you know hundred thousand follower Instagram account at one point. You had these minimum order quantities you're bumping up against. Hard to find suppliers as you're going through this. You know these are real obstacles that I think anyone out there is going to face or something similar that they'll face. What kept you going? What kept you saying? You know what? It's worth trying to figure my way around or over or through this obstacle and keep on trying to get this business off the ground. Well, when the Instagram 
page went down. I like I said, I had this rude awakening where I realized like I didn't really own anything. Like yes, I had the blog, I had some email addresses, but what was the visual representation of this community that I spent hours, lots of long hours after work trying to build, trying to curate. So that was already a motivation factor for me of I wanted to build something long lasting. So kind of building that was already um like a big motivational factor after it went down. And then the other piece of it, like what was motivation, motivating me, sorry, was also just the mission of a lot of people, like all these women that I didn't know, they would send all these beautiful, kind messages of how the the page was, you know, make them feel beautiful or their daughter who was like 10 years old, 11, is like you on the page and it was helping her with like bullying at school. Like those messages were a really huge reason why I was trying to make this happen because people were sharing with me pretty detailed messages about something that I thought was simple was sort of adding a bright day or adding value to their life. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. Now, you were looking for for manufacturers this time. How did you end, uh, end up finding the the, the right uh, partner to, to partner up with to, to create the products? So I figured I had to sell myself to a lot of these companies because the reality is, you know, there's a lot more indie beauty brands now with the rise of direct-to-consumer platforms like with Instagram, Shopify, and those type of things. So they get a lot of inbounds as well. So I decided, you know what, like, let me highlight the things that are different about me. I, I would share with them, like, listen, we've gotten, you know, published in the New York Times. Like, we have this many followers on Instagram. We definitely will have, you know, opportunity to order more once you can work with us on some small samples. So that was really what I focused on doing was kind of sell the opportunity as well. And not just like, oh, I'm begging you to work with me and more like, hey, here's what we have. We have some traction, um, you know, let's do some samples and let's work together. And eventually one of the labs like sent me and some of the, even the labs that sent me samples weren't like really that good because they weren't tailored to what my audience wanted. And once I got a good one, like I was ready to roll. How long did this take to, to finalize the, the product uh, ready for sale? Um, it took about five months um, because what I was able to do, so in our industry, you can have like a stock option, which is sort of off-the-shelf development from a lab or a custom formulation. I didn't quite have enough. So custom formulation lead time can be a year plus. So I went with a stock formulation, but they were able to tweak it slightly, which was like the perfect um, medium for me because I just was ready. I wanted to launch quickly. So that was the best option, and it worked out really well. Got it. Did you have to do any testing, or how did you determine during those five months that, okay, we have the right product now for sale? So in terms of, to be honest, in terms of actually test, A-B testing with the audience, I did it. I was just so happy to get like uh, like a lab that was willing to do smaller minimum order quantities. They had like a stock formulation that was already like, that already had like, um, the health and safety standardizations ready to go. So I was just kind of like, I was just happy to have something in order to put on the website and have a product that to be honest, I actually didn't even do further testing with the audience. I just sort of put it out there and thankfully it sold out and it was just a product I really liked. 
it was definitely a gamble because I didn't test it with my audience. I didn't email them and say, here's what's coming out. I had the website ready. I put it up and I put it on the site. I, I think there's something to be said about the advantages of moving fast and not being so caught up in trying to plan things before launching. And how, so how much of a risk was like how much how much did you have stocked up on, on that launch day that if it flopped, like were you, you know, your life savings down a drain or how bad was it? Yeah, I didn't have that much. I was able to get them to give me about 200 units, which is pretty small. So I didn't have that much. It was just kind of like, you know, I'm doing this regardless. I, I was already like, I was um, knee deep in the whole process. Like I was get, I was very motivated to get it done. So it was just kind of like, you know what? I, honestly, I didn't even think about the possibility of it not working, to be quite honest. So there is something to be said for the blind optimism I went in with that because I wasn't even thinking of it failing. I was just thinking, you know, we've got the product now, we've got our new website, like, I'm, this is going out there, come hell or high water. I was just ready to share with everyone. God, okay, so talk, about, talk to us about this. How did you launch to your community? What was that launch plan like? So the good news is, oh, plan seems like a very stressful <laughs> for what it was. The good news right. was, like, so it coincided with when, like, I confirmed I was getting the Instagram page back. So, I mean, I have other social media channels like Twitter and our email we were using and customers had been, well, I would say blog readers at the time, I'd been reaching out being like, you know, what happened to the page, like content, all of that stuff. So thankfully, the launch coincided with when the page was back up online. So what was really cool is once the blog, the page was back up online and we sent out all like sort of the email telling everyone that we were back, the very first post back was the product. So there was the combination of that excitement that, you know, they could see their favorite content again and we were back with this product. Like that was really the launch. There was really no, I I wish I could say that was like a strategic plan, but it was kind of like, hey, we're back. It's here. Hopefully you like it kind of thing. So. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So once you did, you mentioned that you launched this on the, the same domain as the blog. So people are, there's already kind of traffic there. No. So as I started doing that brand identity work, I realized the blog was a bit noisy because we were, again, I was sponsored, I was writing sponsored posts for other brands, right? So what the blog became, then that's when the blog became content marketing because it wasn't content marketing before. It was meant to be sort of the product. So I created a whole separate, as part of that brand identity work, kind of created a whole separate website, whole separate, like, um, um, adjusted the name to be makeupformelaningirls.com because the blog was actually thankfully called something slightly different and put all our new pictures. Like I did, I did do a photo shoot. It was the photo shoot was kind of hilarious because I physically wasn't there. I kind of I was working, I was traveling for work, so I just kind of orchestrated it all online and it kind of was on Zoom while they were doing the makeup for the model. So all that stuff got done but it was on a separate page from the blog. And then a blog post was also put up to sort of redirect people back to the, to the store. Got it. Okay. makes sense. So now you mentioned that this very first production run that, that you released out to on your website sold out. What was the next step after this? Well, at first it was a lot of screaming and just being like, Oh my God, like, I can't believe this is happening. It was so it's getting real, right? That Shopify cha-ching. I was just like, Holy, <laughs> I don't know if I can swear on here, but I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is really cool. 
uh, that was that was the beginning of just getting really excited for everything. So the next step was really me like being like, okay, I've got this. Like I've got something special here. People want to buy it. So first step was to order more because I didn't have very many. And then I started going all in on the influencer marketing side. So sending it to people that matched sort of our brand identity. This was all free at the time. I wasn't even doing any paid ones. And that went really well. We had one, there was a little bit of luck there. And again, just identifying those alignments because we had been promoting her on our, you know, content marketing side before product came out. So that by the time we reached out to her, this was like an influencer that had a million on YouTube. By the time we reached out to her, it felt very organic because it was like, oh yeah, like we had done like a, it kind of like a um, humans of New York style post on her when we were running content. So by the time we reached out for the sort of product partnership, it was very, oh my gosh, you know, love that you have a brand now. You've always been supportive of me, like definitely going to put this out there. So that was the next step was, okay, we've got a couple people. I wanted to, you know, buy more products, keep spreading the word, kind of go on that momentum. And two months after I also quit my job because I realized I needed to go all in on the brand. Got it. So the initial influencers that you worked with were already people that you knew personally or already collaborated with or just knew just from being... I would say I knew them personally for sure, but we had already been doing... So what I like Mm -hmm. to tell a lot of people is, let's say, and I think it goes across, even if the influencer is more of like a professional influencer or like a business, not necessarily even just for like the e-commerce space. A lot of people like to talk about themselves. A lot of people like to be celebrated, right? So we did a lot of content just, okay, let's say we said like top influencers to watch, top 10 influencers to watch. We would post, do that listicle, and we would share the post with every single influencer that was listed on there. And I think it made people feel good, right? A lot of people put a lot of heart. People don't always see it, but some of these influencers put a lot of time and effort into creating content and then getting a shout out that is basically just, you know, free. It makes people feel kind of valued. So I didn't know them personally, but we had written several articles about them. So we basically repurposed those, sort of sent them out like, hey, we wrote this article about you and guess what? We have a product now. So that was more what it was. I didn't know them personally. All I would say professional business contact. Yeah, that, that's awesome that you are basically already coming into this discussion when it com- for this for, with this influencer already having delivered value to them by creating these articles, creating content about them, celebrating them, like you mentioned. Now, when you are working with an influencer nowadays, now that you have more experience with this, like what is an ideal arrangement with an influencer? So now we definitely send out contracts. Um, Having someone, when you get to the point, I mean, obviously in the beginning I was doing everything myself, but when you get to the point where you can hire someone to sort of be your influencers and partnerships manager, I look at them more as partnerships. And now, in the beginning, it was very short-term focused. Like, I just wanted to get the word out there, get, you know, more traffic to the website. Now, versus just thinking of, oh, the size, how many followers they have. Like, I just try to think of a good content creator. 
that is putting out good content that is interested in a longer term partnership with us. A long term partnership in our in my particular situation would be like oh a product collaboration. So we ended up doing a nude lipstick product collaboration, for example, with a YouTuber, and that went really well because it was meant it, you know it was actually she actually gave insight on the colors we were using. It wasn't just kind of like oh we slapped her name on something. So that's kind of what more of what we do now. It's no not so much okay you know influencer how many people follow you is like you create good content that aligns with our brand mission. Mm-hmm. And you're not looking for an influencer where you're just doing like a one-off deal where they post or write a, or do a review about your product and you know done with the relationship. You're looking for someone that you can be long-term partners with and you mentioned to even to the extent of collaborating with with them on products that you guys release. Yes, yes, because I think those one and done can be good low-hanging fruits, but let's say you get that sailing for this month, like what happens next month, right? When we had more of those brand partnerships, it was we even did a couple pop-ups where she came out to them. It was more of a they were a partner with our organization versus, you know, just a highlight us with a code on their the video one time. Also, it makes it seem like there's at least more of like a steady flow or a more manageable flow of like a marketing channel if you have these established partnerships, you know, yeah. rather, rather than having to start up a new relationship each time. That makes sense. So I want to talk a little bit about your, the website. So makeupformelaningirls.com. What, is, what do you think is the most important page of the, the e-commerce site? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, for, for, for me, just aesthetically, the because we're doing beauty for us it was really those like first home page with the images for people to see but ultimately i think the products as well and description of the products for seo and making sure we're addressing the customer like when i taught with seo experts that's what's supposedly kind of more important but for me personally just that aesthetic piece was very important because for my brand it's done it looks better now but in the beginning it didn't look like that at all it mm-hmm. kind of was more of a janky experience but because we're in the beauty space right i want and because the value that i provide like i told you some of the comments that people would say it's like you know my daughter has been on your page and she feels so confident in herself as like a dark skinned girl or you know my daughter was bullied for having bigger lips or my my sister is dark skinned and she wears a hijab and she feels like she never gets any representation that sort of thing so for me I really wanted people landing on the page to feel that sense of you're welcome here if that makes sense like this is like for you and this is you're trying to buy a beauty product. You're like, yes, you're not going to have a salesperson sort of telling you in person these things, but I wanted to make sure those messages were on the site. Makes sense. So it sounds like you've gone through at least a couple or at least one revision of the website. Yeah, four. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you say were some of the most important changes that you wanted to make each time you went through a revision? Like, what were some things that you focused on to, let's say, particularly to increase like sales and conversions on the website? To more outside of aesthetics for sales and conversions, it was definitely the Shopify apps like the Willio, getting that on there. Um, the product, so this was actually an intern that uh, worked with us that identified this sort of the product images and the zooming in. There's, a, there's an app on Shopify that we actually just implemented for that, especially where we're doing products so people can zoom in on the product photos. Um, another app that works really well. 
um, easy tabs. And I know some of these apps, like if you have HTML or a JavaScript experience, like you could just do them yourself. But because I didn't have that experience, these were the apps that I, and I still use them. Um, easy tabs, these are just like product description tabs on there. Um, frequently bought together was really good for that sort of Amazon style experience to be like, well, if you bought this, you might like this as well. And we also use um, a live chat called Tidio that is an app on Shopify too. So that when people come in again, because we're selling these beauty products online, that feeling of having someone asking you questions, we wanted to recreate that. So that's an app that we use as well. And of course, I think the king is reviews. For stuff for reviews, people want to know how we looked on other people, if other people were happy with the purchase. So reviews, reviews, super important. Awesome. So you mentioned that you were using a live chat on your website. How how's that staff? Like you have someone working on that or tuning in every time, or is it you? Like how do you make sure that you're, I guess, attentive to customers' questions if anyone else out there has live chat on their site? So the thing with the Tidio live chat app we use is pretty good because they've also tried to incorporate more like um, standardized questions. Like, I mean, I, I want to say AI, but everyone uses a, the term AI so wrongly these days where it's like, it's not AI. It's just sort of um, like uh, creating rules and things like that. But mm-hmm. I'll just call it AI for the sake of simplicity. So they have these like, chat bots that they've integrated which is very helpful and then what we do is if it's something easy that can be answered like a shipping question the chat bot will respond but then the person can get the ticket i just like there are other platforms out there but i really like the interface of this one you can also see frequency so uh, frequency of how many tickets or customer questions someone has answered which if you do end up hiring people or it's very easy to see, or even if you're working on your own and you want to track the volume of requests that you responded, like that's also nice to see on there. Awesome. So we talked about makeup for millionandgirls.com is the website. I'll leave this last question. What do you think has been the biggest lesson you've learned in the past year that you want to make sure you take advantage of the learnings from this year? Uh, the last year is that you can't do everything yourself. Hire, hire, if you have the opportunities to. I think hiring is always like a chicken and an egg question because you feel like, well, I don't have enough money, you know, to hire them now. Like, what if they wouldn't be able to stay on? Like, if you have something, like, or if you have opportunities, it could even be volunteers for those people that are really early. But the more you can get other people helping you, even if you get burned and they're not really great at first, Ultimately, that can move your business forward. Like, you just can't do everything. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge experience, Tomi. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. Shopify.